Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. This week, I'm joined by Chef Jorge Guzman. He's the executive chef of Sueño over in Dayton, Ohio, which is about an hour west of Columbus. And he's also the executive chef and owner of Petit Lyon, which is a restaurant up in Minneapolis, and then also has a pop-up concept, Pollo Pollo, in Minneapolis too as well. So Jorge's been somebody I wanted to kind of get on the podcast since last year, first experience at uh, Sueño over in Dayton. Garrett Talmadge, who was on the podcast previously, recommended that restaurant. He almost actually wound up working there. He's actually out at 1922 on the square in Newark now. We went out there once they opened. I think they opened July of last year or so. We went out there kind of a month or two after and just, it was amazing food. It was amazing Mexican food. It's not Tex-Mex. It's not traditional, uh, what Americans think of Mexican food. And they do other things besides Mexican too. Like they just had ribs on the menu. Like that's not really a, a Mexican food staple. It's a lot of Yucatan, Peninsula kind of, but there's also some Mediterranean, some Spanish, Mayan influence too as well in Jorge's cooking. So he comes out to Dayton probably once every two months or something like that and goes through recipes and stuff with the staff. So uh, he was just out here recently, and that's why we were able to kind of set up the podcast with a schedule and coordinate through flights and everything. So it's really awesome to have him on. He's an amazing chef. Uh, the food is just phenomenal out there. I haven't been to the restaurant in Minneapolis, but excited to eventually get up there. Minneapolis has some great restaurants too as well. So, you know, we talk about his career, you know, all the experience he's had running different restaurants, a lot of which are kind of messed up. He kind of ran through the gauntlet of just bad restaurant experiences, I feel like in a way, abrupt closures, being promised things and, you know, oversold, underdelivered, stuff like that too as well. And then he finally opened his own spot and things have been up on the upward trajectory for him. We talk about the James Beard Awards and, and all that stuff too as well. So it's a really awesome conversation. If you haven't been to Sueño, got to get out there, check it out. It's great food. The restaurant itself, the design's awesome. Right next door is a bar called Tender Mercy. It's the same like ownership group and they don't do reservations anymore at the bar. So it's walk-ins only. That place is usually packed. I haven't been to that. We'll stop in there next time we go out there, but that place looks awesome too as well. So check out both those establishments. Dayton's got a couple of cool restaurants. So there's a few others that I'm definitely down to try, definitely looking to try here over the year, but uh, definitely be making back out to Sueño here shortly. So you can follow them on Instagram. It's at Sueño, D-Y-T is the Instagram handle for the restaurant. Jorge's is at Jorge Guzman 1. And then also at Petit Leon MPLS and at Pollo Pollo MPLS. You can find Petit Leon and Pollo Pollo and Sueño. All that stuff is in his bio or his Instagram too as well. So if you go to his bio and you're following, if you go into it, he has it in the top there, just all the other handles that you can follow to for all his cuisine. So awesome to be able to talk to him. Make sure to follow us on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mob. We're on Twitter and Facebook, SpoonMob1 on both of those. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com. Reshuffled that a little bit. So if you click on the Chefs tab, it'll go in order from most recent to oldest of the chefs that we've had on the podcast. So it's not alphabetical anymore. It's chronological. And at the top is newest, latest episode that came out, person that was on. And then going down is you'll get all the way down to Jay Clevin, who was the first guest that we had on the podcast. So parts now known will be picking back up here. We had to take a little break. Just some scheduling and just, you know, burnout and holiday break and all that stuff too. So we're going to be back with the Montana episode. So make sure to check that out. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. Continue to help spread the word, help support the restaurant. We get a bunch of awesome guests coming up. But without further delay, here's my conversation with Chef Jorge Guzman, the executive chef of Sueño in Dayton, Ohio. Thanks for taking some time out of your, your trip, your morning to come on the podcast. 
you know, first learned about Sueño from a chef that we had on the podcast, Garrett Talmadge, who almost wound up working there, I believe. Dayton's an hour away from us here in Columbus, drove out there, had an amazing meal, amazing time. Food is fantastic. Doesn't really seem to be anything else kind of like that in Dayton. You know, Dayton's not the the biggest city in Ohio or anything like that. And I want to get to Sueño and how all that kind of came together. But, you know, we'll start always at the beginning with all of our guests. You know, how did you first get into cooking? I mean, you're originally from born in Mexico City, grew up in Mexico on the Yucatan Peninsula, right? Yeah. So I was born in Mexico City. My family lives in the, the Yucatan in a city called Merida. Most of my family does. You know, I think I grew up there until I was about five or six. And then my dad moved us to St. Louis, Missouri. I don't know why. You know, life turns out the way it is. And here I am. My parents ended up getting divorced. He moved back to Mexico and my brother and I and mom stayed in, in the States. I think I just started cooking um, one out of like necessity. Just my mom worked and my brother and I would be home after school. And, and then I, when I would go back to Mexico, I mean, the food was always such a polarizing thing for me because um, it was just so good. It was one way to remember, you know, where you're from. And so I think I always kind of carried that with me and always had an interest. And then also it's kind of creative. Uh, and then my aunt on my, my mom's side of the family, she was a really great cook. She actually lived her whole life in Ohio and still does. And I remember traveling to visit my aunt and uncle and she was always a great cook and it was just really nice having good food. You know, and when you're growing up as a product of a single parent, sometimes you don't have the time to cook or put the best thing on the table. So I think that's probably part of it. So I just started cooking. The Yucatan Peninsula, like the food and style of cuisine is pretty different, not just from the rest of kind of Mexico, right? Like in Mexico City and stuff like that. Like each state has its own little style. Then it's vastly different from what Americans think Mexican cuisine is, right? Yeah, that's that's a whole discussion in, a, in and of itself is what the majority of Americans view Mexican food as. I think they're very confused if you haven't traveled outside of, let's say, your resort areas or your all-inclusives, if you can make it into certain small towns or pueblos or, you know, certain cities like Oaxaca or Merida or Michoacan and Puebla and all these other places that food is really, you know, has a 10,000-year history in Mexico. And I think people really get kind of what we've considered a lot in, in recent years, it's different, but most of the time people have been considering Mexican food as what they get, that kind of fast, casual Tex-Mex, like a lot of enchilada sauce, a lot of beans and rice. And while that is part of like Mexican cuisine, there's a lot more to it than just that. There is a place for that because it's tasty. I like it. I like eating that stuff, but it's not Mexican food to me. And you're right, the Yucatan Peninsula is very different than... Oaxaca than Michoacan. And that, that's the thing. It's You have to view Mexico as you would view Europe. There's different states. And in Europe, there's different countries. It's, you know, Italy and there's Spain and there's France. And while there might be influence from each other through those countries, it's the same in Mexico. You know, each state is going to have a different speciality or regionality based on where they're located. There is a common flavor or vein that runs through you know, Mexico, we use a lot of dried chilies, we use a lot of fresh chilies. But, you know, speaking, I can really speak on the food of the Yucatan because I'm from there. And that's what I kind of focused on. But when you go to the Yucatan, there's influence from the Lebanese, um, there's influence from the Dutch, there's influence from the Spanish, Caribbean, African, 
Mayan Mexico. And so it, it creates this cuisine that most people aren't familiar with. And they might be familiar with a few dishes from the Yucatan. For instance, like cochinita pibi. People are starting to understand what that is. And it's being made, you know, popular by the Netflix series because of, um, I forget the chef's name, that they did a whole episode on her, you know, digging the pit and choosing the pig and marinating in the recado and covering it with banana leaves and burying it and cooking it. I think it was the Taco Chronicles. She was focused on that and she's... She lives in a pueblo, and she's a chef, and that's her specialty, and that's the Yucatan specialty. So, but then you've got dishes like um, I always like to use a dish called like queso relleno or papazules, which you know, one, if you see papazules written out, you're not going to know how to pronounce it, and two, it's essentially a hard-boiled egg enchilada with pumpkin seed sauce and like a chile tomate sauce and grated parmesan. And it just doesn't like, I think if you put that on a menu, people would be very hesitant to try it because it just pumpkin seed and hard boiled egg. Like it doesn't sound appetizing, but it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And it's, you know, that's a Yucatecan staple, you know, and I think in the Yucatan, we still eat very traditionally like that. You wind up in St. Louis, but you're going back to Mexico every summer, but then eventually you wind up at Drake University playing football. Were you cooking in high school at all, like working in a restaurant or anything? No, I think I did my, I think it was like either, I was either 17 or 18. I think I was 17 the summer, like either before my, the summer of my junior year, the summer of my senior year. I wanted to try it and I ended up cooking at a place called Chez Leon, which is now, I think it's called Niche, which is one of Gerard Kraft's restaurants. I think he bought the building and put a restaurant in there. I ended up loving it. It was my first exposure to the gay community. It was my first exposure to the culture, my first exposure to what work would be like. And I loved it. I thought it was it was so different from everything else that I'd done. And it was fast paced and it was creative and a lot of different personalities. And it was just super intriguing. What position did you play? In high school, I played safety, but in college, I played linebacker. Did you play the entire time you were in college? I played for four years. I redshirted one year. And my last year, I just said, I can't do this anymore. It was, it was probably the best decision I made to actually enjoy my last year of college. It was really nice. So when did you kind of realize that you wanted to be a chef? Like you wanted to pursue that career path and decided to go essentially to, to cooking school? Was it kind of latter stages of college? Was it after college? It was in college. One of my friends, Scott, He'd got me a job. We were talking about, let's go to culinary school together after college because he was working in a restaurant and he really liked it. And he started putting plans together for building a restaurant and stuff. He's like, we should do this together. I was like, yeah, let's go. And so the decision was, you know, we were going to go to school. If I can remember correctly, we were going to go to culinary school together after, after we graduated. He got me a job at the place he was working at. Sadly, he ended up dying in college. So I kind of went to school by myself, I guess, for us, I don't know, you know, I just, it was, it was already in the plans. And it was something that I really enjoyed doing. And so I just kept pursuing it. What made you pick the CIA over school in St. Louis or Iowa or somewhere closer to kind of where you were? Well, I was looking at Johnson and Wales. And that's kind of where I was going to go. It was my mom. She's like the best schools the CIA. That's where you should go. And so I ended up applying and they accepted me. And that's it, really. I'm assuming you did the French program there. I went to the one in um, Poughkeepsie. In that school, it's it's all classic French training. You either do culinary, you do baking and pastry. And I think now they have 
they probably have other accredited degrees now. I think they have a bachelor's degree. I think they have other stuff. But when I was there, it was either one or one or the other. And it was only in a, my year there was the first year you could do the bachelor program. So I had friends that went there for four years, but I only did the associates. Having gone to culinary school, if someone came to you now in one of your kitchens, like, hey, I'm, I'm super serious about making this a career, somebody in their teens, you know, maybe 18, 20, something like that. And they say, hey, you know, should I actually go to culinary school or should I work through some kitchens and stuff? Person's already been working in kitchens a little bit, but what would you recommend for them? If their parents can pay for it and have the money, sure, go. I just paid off the CIA last year and that's that was 17 years. The price isn't worth the admission. Student loan debt's ridiculous right now. I mean, I'm 42 and I'm still paying off my undergrad and the industry doesn't pay enough for somebody to take out those kind of loans and get them paid back without working their ass off two jobs, three jobs. And then you're riddled with this debt where you can get yourself, if you're in a good kitchen, you can progress through good kitchens. And if you're a good cook, you don't burn any bridges, spend a year in one kitchen and have that chef put you in another kitchen where you can learn. The CIA was great. Don't get me wrong. It was a great school. I learned a lot. I could learn what they taught me in a kitchen. I think some of the things that they might teach that, you know, you don't get taught in a kitchen unless you, you get to management level is, you know, costing, you know, kind of the back end business part of it, that kind of thing. You end up learning that as you progress though, as a chef, you know, if you're a good line cook, you end up being a sous chef, you end up learning how to do that stuff. If you have a good chef, if you're in really crappy, shitty kitchens that don't have good cultures, then it's really tough. But one thing the CIA does is it, it does open a lot of doors. You know, you see, even now, if I see that on a resume, you're my first call because I know what it, the program's like and it's a good program. After you graduate from the CIA, what happens? Because there's, there's not a whole lot of information about your time after the CIA and until you get to Surly Brewing. What happens in between there? A lot. My first wife was from Minneapolis and that's why I ended up there. And I just worked in a corporate restaurant because they paid well. They paid what some sous chefs get paid now. You know, and it was kind of like that was back in 2005. So I worked there for about a year and then I fucked off to Colorado for six months. And then I was in Chicago for a year and a half, came back to Minneapolis and I worked at a restaurant called Tejas for two or three years. And then from there it was, I went to the U of M. I, they got hired as their executive chef through Airmark. I was like 29, 28, 28. And that was boring. I knew that Tejas was going to close, so I was looking for another job. They paid really well, and it was an opportunity that they sold me on that they wanted to start bringing more local food and more and better product into the system, which was absolutely not true. And just the systems and rigors that they had set up wasn't for, it's not for my kind of chef. I'm not that kind of chef. And so I just got really bored and ended up quitting, went to work at Corner Table as the chef there for a year, year and a half. And then from there, I got duped into opening this restaurant in one of the cities in Minneapolis. And I brought a friend on board and we, we were going to open this restaurant with this woman that I knew and this and a partner she, she knew that she had worked with before. Well, that guy ended up, he was faking cancer, shaving his head and basically stole all our money. I think we had invested like 150000 He took it all and we couldn't get any help from anybody to get it back and suing him wasn't going to do anything. So I ended up having to declare bankruptcy. And then I started working 
two jobs just to have income. And my wife at that time, you know, she was working a corporate job, so we were okay, thank God. And then from there, I ended up going to Solera, and then from Solera to Surly. And, you know, Solera, I was there for four years. Chefs always kind of move around. Was it just kind of whatever opportunity kind of showed up? You're like, all right, is this interesting? What does this pay? Or were you specifically looking like, all right, let me go try and do work at this style restaurant, try and learn that cuisine? Okay, the Aramark thing, it sounds weird, but like maybe there's some skill sets, some like fast casual stuff that I could get from that, that kind of train of thought? Yeah, no, I think part of it for me was because I had these loans that I had to pay back. So money was a factor, which, you know, that kind of, it's not how you want to pursue being a chef. You know, you don't want it to be based on money, but it's like, unfortunately, when you have $72,000 in debt, you just can't keep putting it off because the interest is just going to kill you. So some of my decisions were financially based and I didn't make decisions based off of working for certain people. Like I've never worked for a named chef. I, I don't have that in my resume. I don't, I don't have, you know, not been at any three-star Michelin restaurants or five-star restaurants or, you know, I don't, I didn't work for Robuchon. I didn't do, you know, things that people like find like, oh, well, this guy's got to be good because he worked for so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. You know, that's kind of like the media really loves like, oh, so-and-so works for blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, who gives a fuck? Like he can still or she can still be a great chef regardless of where they've worked. It just depends on the person. In hindsight, I would have loved to have made different decisions. Like being in Chicago, I should have probably worked at, I think about, you know, Rick Bayless trying to work at one of his spots or even Charlie Trotter's just to like get the experience, even though, you know, he's notoriously a nightmare to work for. But I never had that experience of working for someone because I was always trying to pay back my loans. Working 18 hours for 60 bucks a day, you can't do it. So I think that was probably why I made decisions the way I did. So then you wind up at Surly Brewing and the Brewer's Table restaurant. That's kind of where you start to get like noticed a little bit. Top 10 restaurant by Food and Wine. I think 2016, 2017, you were nominated for James Beard Award, Best Chef Midwest. How did you find out about getting nominated? You just find out on the internet. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think like Dara Moskowitz, she's a, a local writer in town and she's she's a five-time, six-time Beard Award winner, extremely well-written, well-spoken. I remember my first interview with her when I got the job at Surly and she's like, who the fuck are you? I don't know who you are. You know, I was the chef at Solera for four years, but Solera was like a dying restaurant too. It was at one point was this this really like well-known place and things happened but i was there for four years because i I really enjoyed the job and the ownership was great and you know i'm i'm an unknown i had a good reputation i think in town and i got recommended the job you know somebody recommended surly uh recommended me to surly and so that's kind of how i got the interview in the end and then i know i wasn't their first choice of chef i think they asked some other like well-known chefs in town. I think uh, Mike Phillips was someone they asked and he's, you know, he's the owner of Red Table Meats. And uh, they asked uh, a chef that had just passed away from cancer, Jack Rebel. You know, he was a pretty well-known chef and a really great operator and like an amazing chef. And he was just like, it's too big. It's not, it's not, you're not going to be able to do it. And he passed on it. Um, And Mike actually recommended me to them and I was already running Solera, which was a large restaurant. So they offered me the job and I was super excited. 
And you're there for a couple of years. And I think the restaurant wound up closing randomly, like August 2017. Did you ever find out why they closed? No, I was there for four years, 2013 to 2017. No, I just had a gut feeling, ended up having beers with the owner and walking around the property. And he just said, we're going to close Brewer's Table. And I never got a reason. And it wasn't like as an entity by itself, Brewer Stable wasn't bringing in millions of dollars. You know, it was a small portion of what the larger machine was. You know, as a whole, we were bringing in close to 12 to 13 million in food and beverage throughout all our outlets, which was the beer hall, our catering service, our patio and food truck, and then Brewer Stable. And Brewer Stable was supposed to be this restaurant that he wanted to elevate beer and food. Well, we did what he wanted, and it was the best. It was the best restaurant that served only beer and food in the country. And he's like, well, we did what we wanted to do, and now we're going to close. I'm like, he didn't give me an option of staying. He just said, here's a severance, and thanks for your help. So from there, I think you wind up moving to La Crosse, Wisconsin, which I have been to. There's not much there. There's a wedding uh, that we went to a couple years back uh, for a friend of my wife's. You wind up going there, you know, take this job at, uh, I think it was La Crosse Distilling Co. How did you wind up there? That just feels like the middle of nowhere. After Surly, it's like, what do you do? It was such a big job. You know, it, it was, I had 80 cooks, 10 chefs, you know, running a huge operation, winning all these awards and accolades and you're let go. And all of a sudden you're like, well, what, what do I do now? And I felt like I don't want to go back to running just a restaurant because I can do so much more than that. You know, I'm capable of running a multiple restaurants. And I don't want to make $50,000 a year killing myself running somebody else's shit. So um, I traveled a little bit. You know, I went and visited my family in St. Louis. I visited my buddy out in, in California. And we went to Yosemite and hung out and went to Mexico for a couple of weeks and just kind of fucked off for a little bit. And then came back and helped a local coffee company just do a little consulting. And then in that time, I ended up meeting my wife now. And she is from a small town called Westby, which is 45 minutes from La Crosse. And so that was the connection to La Crosse. You know, she was living in Door County and she ended up moving to Minneapolis for our relationship. And she's a yoga instructor, a massage therapist, uh, kind of a healer. You know, that's what her, she does. She teaches yoga instructors how to be yoga instructors. But Unless you have your own practice, you don't make enough money being a massage therapist. And we weren't at the point because all her clients were in Door County to reestablish herself would have taken a couple of years. And so we were just kind of like, well, what do we do? And then this opportunity in the cross came up. Well, I took it as a consulting job at first. And so I, we would travel to La Crosse a week here and a week there to consult on the project. Well, the owner of the project had these extremely wealthy. His family is probably one of the richest families in lacrosse. And he had these really great plans to try to make lacrosse into a food city. It's like, I really want to do, this is what I want to do. And then, you know, so I start thinking of places like Asheville and how that started, Austin, how that started. And, you know, there's, when someone approaches you with an idea that big and has the capital to do it, it's like, well, I can get behind that. And, you know, here's what I need to get paid. Here's what I want out of this. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. And so we ended up signing on with them and moving to lacrosse. And it just ended up being a really bad idea because he was an addict and you can't really do business with an addict. 
doesn't work. And I, I, you know, in between that time, my wife got pregnant and I'm in this position in this job where I'm super depressed, bouts of like hopelessness and like thoughts of suicide. And because of like what I had and what I was capable of to where I was working in this environment that was completely toxic and nobody took seriously. And with this individual that basically lied to me and then has this immense problem that he can't get over. And it came to the point where I just had had enough and basically told his dad, who's the one with the money, that if I didn't need the insurance because my wife was pregnant, that I would have told his son to go fuck off months ago. And that was verbatim. Well, three days later, he fired me for some bullshit reason and probably the best thing that happened to us, you know, and then then I was just kind of scrambling to figure out how to make things work. And then we, you know, we had our son and then the pandemic hit and then all this shit. And in between that time, I'm speaking to my partner, Ben, in Minneapolis about coming back and looking for like literally the day I got fired the next day, Ben and I were, I was in Minneapolis looking for, looking for, uh, for buildings for our next, for a project. And then all this time I'd been talking to Sueño, trying to work out a deal with them. You know, we ended up moving back to Minneapolis, opening Petite. And I, during that time, I was already working with Sueño, doing things remotely, setting up menus and systems and all that stuff. So lacrosse was just kind of a, I think it's just where we were, we were there to have our son, honestly. So how long did it take you to figure out like in that partnership deal, like, oh, this is not at all what he said it was. It was literally like two days in, we moved there. The next day he was passed out in the bathroom for five hours. And I was like, that's, that's just not normal. And so I started having conversations with people and they're like, yeah, there's a lot of cocaine use and this and that. And the feeling I had inside me was like, like battery acid. It was just like, fuck. I just moved my whole life here for this. It sucked. It was just like, it was one of the worst feelings to know like, okay, well, this is, this is happening now. And, you know, and we went into it trying to, trying to help him. We went to his dad and like, we think he's got a problem and we want to help because we were sympathetic. You know, it's being an addict is not, not easy. And it's sometimes you can't get out of it. And, but as an addict, it's like that person has to want to get better. You can't do anything for them unless they want to. So definitely learn that. When did you know it was time to open your own restaurant? I think it was after Surly just because I was tired of having the threat of someone be able to pull my job whenever they wanted to or make decisions that didn't make sense or listening to other people and then making decisions based on just really misinformation. No one should walk into work with a threat of you might get fired, you know, every day. Like that's just unhealthy and who wants to be in that situation and I was just tired of working for other people and making them money and not making money for myself. And I was like, the, and the only way to actually like sustain yourself in this industry is either work in a really huge corporate setting where you can get paid six figures and you work nine to five and you can have a 401k match and your IRAs and all that stuff is great. I'm not that chef or you own your own where you can you know, you still got to work hard. It's I'm not like I'm not working hard and working harder than I was before, but at least it's mine and I, and I own a percentage of it and I can make it as successful as possible with my partners. Um, and at the end of the day, we make the calls, not somebody else. So when you move back to Minneapolis, you reconnect with Ben and you guys decide to open your own restaurant. How difficult is it to come up with funding for your own project? 
Is it just go to a bank, try and get a loan, or is it more complicated than that? It's pretty hard. I mean, we were lucky because Ben's uncle funded our our venture, and he's a well-off individual. But we did it super cheap. I think we did it for like less than three hundred thousand, which is um, is amazing. You know, it's a second generation spot. We did all the work inside. We're using all the equipment that was still there. So it's not like we, you know, we didn't go in needing a million dollars. Right now, I'm trying to open a project. You know, this brand that I have and. I'm finding it extremely difficult to find money, but I know that there's chefs that have their own investors, and I don't know how they find them because it's tough. And some people are really good at finding money like that. And there's some chefs in town I know that have multiple restaurants that just use a bank, but they also have help. Uh, you know, I don't want to speak too much about this because it's personal. Yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. And you know, I spoke to I spoke to one of my friends. He's like 85, super, super wealthy. Like he's owned uh, a very large company in Minneapolis for a long time. You know, it's a national company. We've been friends for for a long time. And, you know, we were having coffee one morning and he's very blunt. And he said, the reason you're having a hard time finding money is because you're Mexican. And I never thought about that. While I present white, my name writes and looks Mexican. And he might be right. Somebody sees my name, Jorge Guzman. Well, what's the first impression they're going to get? Latino, brown skin, uneducated. You know, that could be part of it. I, I don't know. But nobody had ever said that to me. And I, it was kind of like, huh. And he wasn't trying to be derogatory. And he wasn't trying to be mean about it. He was just being matter of fact. Because he is in that, he is in that 1%. He knows like what those conversations are like. And plenty of other people getting money. But I don't want to say that's the only reason. We're also in the middle of a pandemic. Nobody's just shelling out money right now. Maybe if it was different, who knows? And I never thought about that. And I don't know if that's the reason, but he said it, you know, it stuck with me. How did you guys kind of come up with like the name, the space? Like how did that all kind of come together? I came up with it. I was in lacrosse and we found the building and I just had my son Everest and he's a Leo. And then Ben was having a son and he was going to name him Leo. And I was like, let's just name it. Petit Leon. And it just, it just came to me. I don't know why. And that's how we came up with it. I think the story is like, you were just kind of driving by it. You're like, oh. It's in a neighborhood that I'm super familiar with and actually lived in for a long time. It was an old restaurant that was pretty popular called the Blackbird. But when I drove by, I saw a release sign in the window. I was like, oh. And so I just called Ben. I'm like, hey, can you get on this and see what it's all about? And Ben did all the legwork and pretty much got us the building. So you guys didn't open until the pandemic started, right? You were getting ready to open and then the pandemic happened. Yeah, we opened October, October 30th, 30th or 31st, 2020. You know, I had like, a, you know, we were going to open regular. Here's the menu. And then all of a sudden the pandemic comes back or whatever. And so we pivot to takeout and I do a whole different takeout menu. And we do that until April. And then once April came around, we, my chef and I back to let's, let's get a menu going, let's hire staff. And yeah, so that's kind of what we did. We just pivoted back and forth to figure out what we had to do. And now we're back to doing takeout again, as well as in dining, but we're not changing our menu. It's just, here's what we can offer for takeout. Probably already had the menu and development, you know, before you guys open, then coronavirus happens, lockdowns, all that stuff. And you have to change over the menu. Was it easy or difficult to do that? Because then, you know, you also have to take into account, like, how does this travel to go containers, like all that stuff? Was it more challenging than you would expect? No, 
it was pretty easy. I mean, Surly really set me up to do a lot of things. I mean, the beer hall itself would do, you know, we would do 600000 to $700,000 in sales a month. And so we became very good at doing good food fast. And then it's just a thought. Then you just think about what's going to travel well. And you, that's how you create a menu. And so the menu didn't have to be Petite Leon. It had to be a good takeout. So that's kind of, we, I brought back some, some favorite dishes we did at Surly. And my chef, Rhett, worked at Surly with me. So, you know, he was familiar. Um, my cook, Mike, at the time. Um, who's still our, he's our prep cook now, also worked at Surly with me. So like he was familiar. And so we, it was pretty easy. It was just like, what's going to travel well? What's going to be tasty? What are, what do people want? And it's comfort food. So we did, you know, our burger and a chicken sandwich and fried Brussels sprouts and spaghetti and fries and things that people want for takeout. You know, like, what do you want for takeout? Well, I don't want a steak and something else. I want, I want a good burger and I want a good salad and something warm and tasty. So I read that you had, you know, some pretty lofty ideas for when you first opened your own restaurant, things like cover employees medical, 20% service charge, no tipping, starting everybody out $15 an hour, setting up a retirement plan, eventually figuring out how to provide employees with some equity in the business too. Were you able to do most or all those things or is it kind of a staged progression where it's like, yeah, we can obviously do these things up front, but then kind of be in business a couple of years before we can implement these other facts? It's a staged one, but a lot of them we have done. So we do do a, a service charge. All our employees make well above minimum wage for the most part. That's what the service charge is for. I think our, our opening team all made 22 bucks an hour. And that's you know part of the livable wage thing. The service charge allows us to use that money to pay our labor. Um, and also some of it goes to healthcare. We do pay a percentage of a health plan for our employees and dental. We don't have the funds to do a match for 401k and we don't have equity to give right now. Probably have to buy a, an owner or two out or give up equity ourselves. And we're just not, uh, we're not at that position yet, but it is something that we do talk about. You know, I'd like to give, it'd be nice to have a chef that has equity because it adds more to what you do. It's harder to walk away from. I think it's a good thing. Leon has described kind of flavors, Spanish, Mexican, French, Peruvian, Lebanese. I know obviously, you know, Spanish, Mexican, French come from going to culinary school and where you grew up and everything, but where does like Lebanese come into the flavor profile? There's a lot of Lebanese influence in uh, the Yucatecan cooking. And also it's just tasty. I mean, kind of Middle Eastern food, there's only like a handful of restaurants that I can think of that, you know, like Otolenghi, um, who's the gentleman in uh, Pennsylvania, Michael uh, Zaroff, James Reed winner. I don't know if he's, he's Jewish and I don't know if he's Syrian or... Oh, Solomonov. He's Israeli. Zahav is the name of his uh, big restaurant, but he's got a bunch. Yeah. And so like the flavors are phenomenal. I would like to eat that way. You know, I love Middle Eastern cooking because it's just, there's so much flavor, but it's also really healthy. And a lot of us aren't familiar with those flavors because it's not something we, we cook a lot and it's not something we eat a lot. And so that part of the world is, for me, less explored than other parts of the world. And there's always things that kind of work. You know, for instance, our, our beet dish, both here and in Sueño, has a sauce called pilpachuma, which is a, a Jewish Yemeni sauce from Egypt. Chilies, caraway, garlic, you know, and 
dry chilies are found everywhere in Mexico and they're using them in this sauce as well. The caraway is kind of a different one, but caraway works really well with beets. So it's like, well, let's use it. And it's super, super great. It's really similar to kind of like a salsa matcha almost. And it's just fun to find things like that. And then, you know, the labna sauce we use for our beets is, is Middle Eastern and it's super tasty. And, and, you know, it's just, I didn't want to be pigeonholed into like, you have to be a French restaurant or a Spanish restaurant or, you know, because then like your ideas get stifled because it's like you're, you're in one narrow lane of cuisine. You know, when I worked at Solera, it was a Spanish restaurant. So it was all Spanish. And while you can explore the country and there's a lot of like influence from Africa and Morocco and all that other, and all those other parts of the world at its heart, it has to be a Spanish restaurant. And so I didn't want to just kind of like have to do a certain kind of cuisine. I wanted to make sure that if I want to put a salmon riette next to duck carnitas, then fuck it, we're going to do it. And it makes, well, when you talk about it, it's like, how's that going to make sense? It's hard to like fathom, but when you come to petite, it just makes sense. It's not like, a, I don't know, there's something for everyone, you know? So with your other concept, Poyo Poyo, you, know, you started that as a pop-up and then it incorporated it into Leon once you guys kind of opened and everything. Did that like originally start as an outlet for your cooking when you're lining things up for Leon before it opened? How did that all get started? And do you think you can eventually spin that off into a standalone concept? Yeah, it's, it started as like back when I was visiting Tulum, like seven, eight years ago. I had this idea and then I just started doing pop-ups because I needed money. And I used that as like, well, I want to open Poyo Poyo. And that's what we were going to open first, but the space we found didn't match the concept. And so I've just kind of kept using it as a pop-up and we used it as a ghost kitchen because it was just a really good meal kit to sell. You know, you had a whole chicken, a bunch of sides, tortillas, and you sell it for 75 bucks and it feeds a family of four. Super simple, you know, easy to do. And once we opened, we took it away because it's a whole different concept. You know, it doesn't, doesn't have a, a place in Petite. Yeah, I'm currently looking to open it as a brick and mortar. But again, back to the money thing. So how did the opportunity with Sueño come about? You're Minneapolis, Wisconsin and everything, and Sueño's in Dayton, Ohio. The owner of Macienda, the place where we, the company we buy our heirloom corn from, he recommended me to them. And then we started talking and one thing led to another. And Is that the people from like the Idea Collective? Yeah. So yeah, it was, um, I started speaking with Chris and Jeremy and then met David and Ginger. And Chris and I actually spoke like years ago because somebody else had recommended me to him when they first came here to start a project. But I think their funding fell through. That went dark for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden I got picked back up conversations with Jeremy. And he's like, well, I want you to speak with Chris. And I was like, Chris Dimmick. And I was like, oh, I've already spoken to Chris. And he's like, huh, interesting. So it's kind of a weird coincidence. So it was a happy uh, coincidence. Did they ever say why Dayton, Ohio? Because I mean, like when you look at their website, I mean, they do restaurants design and different concepts, but a lot of it's, I think like New York City, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, LA, and then it's like Dayton. Is one of them from there or something? Or I think it's an emerging market, you know, that there's not anything here. There's places to be filled and there's opportunities for people to grow. And I think that's part of it is, you know, a lot of these larger markets, it's like, Oklahoma, Minneapolis, Chicago, New York, like it's so tough to open your own place and it costs so much money and it's constant like competition. And it's just, it, it takes so much more capital to do that. And if you come to smaller markets, it's 
as an owner and even as a chef, it's like you have more opportunity to, to grow. Your quality of life becomes a little bit better. You know, you're not sitting in traffic in Dayton, Ohio, which is really great. You are in Chicago. You are in Minneapolis. You know, if we're going to get groceries in Minneapolis, it's two hours. You know, we got to drive here. We got to drive there. Here, it's 30 minutes. And that's like, a, that's a huge, it's a huge plus. So they have like a sister bar, Tender Mercy, which is like right next door. That opened first. And I think they made uh, like the best bars in America list on like Esquire magazine and all that stuff. And then you guys kind of open a little bit after that. With the concept for Sueño or like at least the food part of it, were you always kind of focused on cuisine from multiple regions around Mexico, even more so than Petit Leon? Or like how did you make it so they differentiate from each other, even though they're both your restaurants? When I first opened, like, obviously, I, I took dishes that I use at Petite and put them on the menu here as well. And that was just to, to be able to open. It was a huge menu, and I needed to have you know, six weeks it took us to open, you know, six weeks. It's like, all right, here's the menu. We're going to do some R&D. And I knew there were certain dishes that I could take from Petite that I already had recipes for that I knew would work, that could translate and work well at Sueño. And I think it was like two or three, three, two or three dishes. That was my reasoning for that, which is like to save myself some time and energy. And it's, you know, people have differences of opinion. For me, it's like, you know, I'm, what, 700 miles away from Petite. Who in Dayton is going to go to Petite? Only one person has to eat my food at Petit Leon. And so, but in terms of the menu, like for Sueño, you know, it's, we want it to be Mexican. We're still in, you know, we've only been open for six months. So we're still kind of, for me, in that phase of like really trying to get to know who we are as a kitchen and what we want to do and learning our guests and what they want. And I don't want it to be a fine dining experience. I want it to be a casual dining because fine dining is right now too pretentious for me. It's too stuffy. I don't want it to be that. Um, While it's fun doing that, it's a different kind of cooking. And cooking fine dining Mexican food is, is a lot of fun, but it's also really a lot of fun eating Mexican food the way that it should be, you know, like I just want it to be more fun and, and approachable. It's more like engaging. Yes, we would love to have you for your special occasion, but we're not only about special occasions. We want you to come here more than once a year. Come on a Tuesday every other week. We want it to be approachable. It's like, and we're, we're everyone's learning, right? We're learning our guests and our guests are learning about what Mexican food is. And there's, you know, we have enchiladas on the menu. People know what enchiladas are, but like, you're not going to get enchiladas like ours anywhere else in town. You know, we make our own mole, we make our own filling, we roll them with really great tortillas and it's, it's authentic, right? It's how you have it in Oaxaca or somewhere. You know, our pak is one of our best selling dishes and it's, you know, it's very traditional Mayan pumpkin seed dip, but it's a, it's a dip. It's like having hummus on your menu. You know, it's like, Let's make the food fun, approachable, but still really traditional. That's where I'm at right now. It's like, I want to eat the food that I want to eat if I was to come in here. I don't want a small little piece of steak with a cute sauce and really great garnish and whatnot. I want I want a big cut of steak with beans and onions and tortillas on the side so I can make a taco. And that's what we serve and we sell, we sell a lot of that stuff. And, you know, I want to make it so people have an understanding that Mexican food just isn't what their perception is. It's, it's a lot of things. And we will like have certain dishes on our menu that will be very traditional and different for people. And that's like, that's part of the fun of it. But then we'll also have things like, you know, guacamole, enchiladas, things that they're comfortable with. You know, see, we're going to put a Caesar salad on. 
Caesar salad is from Tijuana. You know, a lot of people don't know that, you know, but if you do the research, it's like it's, it's Mexican salad, but everybody knows what a Caesar salad is and they're comfortable with that. But from our perspective, it's like, well, it's a Mexican salad. So we're going to put it on the menu knowing that it will both feed our need for being a traditional Mexican dish, but also feed the need of our clientele having something that they're comfortable with and really like. So it's, it's always kind of playing that game. And then we just have fun with it. You know, our opening tamale was very different than what people expected. And like, that's where the fun can be, you know. So we're still growing into who we are and we're still exploring. And that's kind of the fun part about it. I think tomorrow we're putting uh, ribs on the menu. You don't really eat a lot of ribs in Mexico. It's just not like a cultural thing like it is here. But we know that in the States, people love ribs. I love ribs. If I saw them on the menu, I'd be like, fuck yeah, let's eat those. So we'll, you know, we'll use our hearth to smoke them and then we'll glaze them with like a tamarind glaze, um, like a tamarind barbecue sauce. And then we'll use, you know, we're making an escabeche and a morita salsa and like chopped onions and cilantro and like some other things to accompany it so that if you want to make a taco out of it, you have all the components to do that. If you want to just cut them and eat them like ribs, you can do that too. And they'll be sticky and good and they'll taste like Mexico, but they have the, the cultural kind of backbone of being an American dish, which I think that's where you can take liberties and have fun with your menu and your food to both satisfy the guests and your and your chefs, you know? So it's always a dance between like who we are, what we are, what people need, what they want. It's like, you have to listen. You can't force, like force feed people the food that you want to do because then they're not going to come and they're not going to want it. But we can start taking like small liberties with flavors and directions on like the ribs, for instance, is just the best example of like knowing that that dish is something people will really want to eat because they're comfortable with ribs and they're really good. But how do we make it Mexican? Right. And that's kind of where, where we can have fun with it. Dayton isn't exactly a town known for culinary prowess or anything like that. But was that part of the appeal of getting involved with Sueño is that you can kind of be this pioneer restaurant for Dayton and maybe elevate the food scene a little bit and start showing people that, yes, we're in Dayton, Ohio, which is not well known for food or anything like that. But there's plenty of space here available and, and start to kind of build something like you kind of mentioned with lacrosse, like you had that idea too? Yeah, definitely. It's that's something that entices me, you know, and there's people trying to do that right now. The the owners of Grist and Jollity are pushing food and technique and, and things like that. And then there's us at Sueño and Tender Mercy. And I know there's other people doing the same that, you know, have ideas. Um, yeah, I would love to make Dayton a destination for food and build the city back up you know, and have people from the suburbs because the suburbs are fucking sprawling. I mean, it's, it's amazing how big, you know, when I leave the city and drive out whatever direction it is, it's a really, it's huge. I mean, it's, it's enormous. And it's like, how do we reach all those people to come back downtown to spend time? Well, right now there's only so much to do downtown. And it, I know there's a rebuilding phase happening. And I think that's really great to revitalize uh, an area that was once very vital in a city like Dayton is I think a really lofty and admirable goal. And I'd love to be part of like recreating a, an identity for what downtown Dayton is. Cause it's got a great feel. I think it could be something really special. It just got to start somewhere, you know, for someone who's like a, a rising chef progressing through their career, how important is it for them to make sure their next opportunity is the right opportunity? 
I don't know. I'm kind of at a crossroads in my career right now of really kind of giving a shit anymore about accolades and the James Beard Award. And I'm almost just, I want to just cook for the sake of making people feel good. We place so much pressure on ourselves to be these chefs that, you know, and maybe it's just, it's, it's a handful of us, maybe me included. Like, you know, I want a James Beard Award, but at what, at what price do I want it? And I'm, you know, I'm 42. I have a family. What's more important, a piece of paper that says you have this award now or spending time with my family and making them successful. There are definitely roads to take if you want to be that kind of chef. And part of it is working for certain people and putting yourself in a situation of working for those those people because it's like it's just they're in that circle, right? If you want to be in that circle, get yourself in that circle. And there's a way to do it. And it's working at certain restaurants, surrounding yourself with certain chefs, being in the know, working for a 50 best restaurant. Yeah. But you have to be good to be able to elevate yourself to that stature. You know, you can go work there. And if you're not good enough to be a chef in a place like that, you just won't make it. But if you've got the chops to do it and that's the direction you want to take and you want to sacrifice time, um, then by all means, like that's a great road to take. Looking back in my 20s and 30s, I feel like I should have done that. But I didn't. And here I am. So it's, I think everyone's path is different. It just, you really have to like do a lot of soul searching and kind of thinking about who you are as a person and what you really want out of your job. I mean, we're such a, it's such a weird question. Like you don't ask an accountant that question, you know, you don't say well, like, well, for your next career, like, what do you really want out of it? Like, how do you want to elevate yourself? It's like, I just want a job. You go nine to five and get paid 80 grand and I have benefits and you go home, right? That's what they do. But as a chef, it's like, we have to consider like, well, do you want to be part of the club where you're being written about in Food and Wine and Bon Appetit and Savour and, you know, Art Culinaire and do you want a James Beard Award? Or do you just want to work at this hospital and create food for a cafeteria? Or it's all individualistic in terms of like what you want to do with your career and who you want to be. And then social media and everything else doesn't help it. You know, you see all these, when you follow that certain kind of like chef and you see what they're doing and you want to be part of it and you can't be it, it can really hurt you mentally, you know, and it's, it's just a tough, it's kind of a tough, tough place to be sometimes, you know, cause you want to be the best, you know, I want to be the best. How do I do that? How do I get noticed? How do I, you know, it's like, it's, it's a mind fuck. It can really hurt sometimes. And I think that's part of like being a chef too. It's like we're constantly being critiqued every day on what we do. Like we're putting out 200 dishes and every, every one of those dishes, someone's going to have an opinion on and 20 of them are going to put it on Google or Yelp and say, it's so good. Or what was he thinking or she thinking? Or, you know, it's like, what other job gets critiqued via the internet on a day-to-day basis? And that shit does affect people. You get angry. Um, it affects your business. Uh, it affects your livelihood. And I don't think people realize that when they put a, they think they're a fucking food writer and then they put a shitty review up. It's like, fuck off. Like someone's going to read that make an assumption and an opinion and not come in and spend money in our place. And that's your fault. And whether or not we delivered on what we were, we said we did, you can come directly to us, write an email, grab a manager, say, I'm not happy with my experience and we'll make it right. You know, but I'd rather have that direct feedback versus reading it on the internet, which is what it is now because it does affect our business. Oh, we got to have 4.7 stars on Google or we got to check our Yelp reviews and like we got to respond to them. And it's just like, it's, it's fucking, it's very uh, frustrating at times. 
So with the James Beard Award, I know you've been in the past and, and maybe still a little bit, you're very upfront with your desire to win one. I think mainly for the fact that no Mexican-born chef has ever won the Best Chef Midwest category. Do you still feel the same way about that with the revelations about the vote fixing and the manipulation of all that stuff, and then they canceled it, and then they skipped a year, kind of citing coronavirus pandemic and stuff, but there was manipulation going on in there trying to make sure certain people won certain categories and stuff like that instead of the best actual chef. In my opinion, it shouldn't matter about race, orientation, gender, any of that stuff. It's just whoever's the most talented that year. So do you still want to win one? And then also, how do you feel about potentially winning the best chef Great Lakes now that you're involved in Dayton, Ohio? That's a whole separate category. I mean, I'm not going to lie and say like, I don't want to win one. I mean, how fucking cool would it be to win two? I mean, get the fuck out of here. Of course, it'd be awesome, you know? But at the same time, I'm as I progress in my career and the older I get and now having a son and, and seeing what might be more important to me, like, yes, I still want one. Why? A number of reasons. One is, is because I am Mexican-born. There hasn't been a Mexican chef that has won that category. And there should be because there's plenty of talent out there that deserves it. When you look back at who has won, you know, the majority are, are white men and French cooking and things like that. You know, I, I think Rick Bayless won the first one for Midwest Mexican. Other than that, I don't know any other Mexican food that's that's been on that on the register for Midwest. A, a James Beard Award opens a lot of doors and can do a lot of good. Um, there's people that win it and don't do anything with it. They just either something happens in their life or they change careers or they just don't care or and there's people that have it that do a lot of good with it because now they have a platform. While I have a small platform to voice opinion and make small changes, it'd be great to have a platform where, you know, I've had Mexican chefs text me or DM me on Instagram and say, like, you're an inspiration to me. Like, I want to continue cooking because of what you're doing. And to have to win an award like that and have my name solidified in a, in a position amongst people where we're not represented, that's a big deal. And I know I'm good enough to win one. I know I'm, and maybe that's arrogant, but I'm a good chef. I, I cook good food. I don't suck. And if I suck, that'd be like, I'm not good enough to win one. Obviously, someone thought I was good enough to be nominated. That's part of, you know, knowing that, you know, maybe I can win one. I think it's important to represent my culture in that way in wherever I'm living, which is the Midwest. You know, Chicago is such a huge city with so many Mexican chefs that do so much good food. They haven't won. It's tough, you know, it's, it, and you don't know, you just don't know whether you're going to even be nominated or what. And like, I don't cook to be nominated. I don't cook to win. Is it on my mind? Yeah, occasionally, you know. Um, it is right now just because the nomination process is happening. But after that, it's, I just, you know, I have other things to think about, like making sure my restaurant stays open, you know, making enough money to try to buy a house, trying to take time off, you know. In those things that I think about, the James Beard Award every once in a while will get dropped in just because, you know, you read an article and you want to be considered one of the best if that's what you're trying to do. And I've been doing this for a really long time. And if I don't win one, whatever, you know, it's like, okay, and we'll just see where the future takes me. Like, who knows? You know, there's, but yeah, I want to represent my culture in that category. What's your favorite tattoo that you have? The lion. And I got that like years ago and now it makes sense. <laughs> you, I think, had COVID at one point. Did you ever lose your sense of smell and taste? And if you did, did you get it back? Yeah, I lost it and got it back. 
What makes Minneapolis a burger town? Fuck me. Who knows? The food writers, they make it the burger town. It's, you know, there's certain things they write about, and burgers is one of them, and the state fair is another one, and it just is. You know, and we've got the Juicy Lucy is like, you know, a Minnesota staple burger, like for years, you know. Um, that probably has something to do with it, but you got to have a good burger. Even the fanciest restaurants, Spoon and Stable, they serve a burger. Just what people do there. Who knows? With the staffing shortages kind of across the industry or you know, lack of people willing to come back to the restaurant industry, you know, since COVID and the lockdowns and all that stuff, how does a restaurant, whether it's a new restaurant, an old restaurant, how do they bridge that gap and bring people back into the industry or, or find new people or been anything that you've experienced with your restaurants? With Petite, we're lucky because we're small and we're able to kind of find people. A lot of people left because there's just a better quality of life outside of the restaurant industry. You know, I've got a couple sous chefs that I know that no longer are in the industry and are doing, you know, corporate jobs. And they're like, we're much happier. You know, we have really good pay. We have benefits. Like I'm home on the weekends. Like I'm not stressed about everything. I don't take my work home with me. And then we've got people on the opposite end that love the, the stress of being in the restaurant industry and the, the romance of it. And, you know, the creativity that comes with it and the life of it. I think it's drastically changed. Like in Appetit, you know, we don't, we, our culture is very different. You know, we're not sitting at, at the end of the night getting bombed at the bar and we're not going out, you know, hitting up the bars at 2 a.m. and coming to work hungover the next day. Like that's not our culture. We're, we're, we're an older kitchen and we're an older restaurant. We have, you know, very seasoned individuals that work for us that have worked in like the best restaurants in Minneapolis both in the front and the back. So we're really special in that way where it was one of the, the reasons we were able to really open so quickly, pivot, open again, do the things we're able to do because we have such a great staff that has such great experience that they're able to just like, they know what to do. We don't have to tell them what to do. It's, it's kind of really lucky in that aspect. And we provide a really nice package and a great atmosphere and people stick around. So, and we're not a huge restaurant, which helps. You know, I think it's harder to staff larger restaurants right now and finding people and whatnot. So it's just tough. You know, I think it's tough everywhere. What's next for you professionally, future plans? My wife's starting a business and I want to, I want to help her do that to the point where I don't have to work anymore and she has to pay me. I want her to be that successful and, and I'll, I'll just like consult on the side and help her do what she's doing. That's, I would, I would love to do that. Few more questions here, then we'll get you out of here because I know you got to get over to to Sueno. This question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, Chef Josh Habiger of Bastion in Nashville. Uh, they were doing a they had like a comedy night there, so it was fuck Mary kill. So his question was FMK pancakes, waffles, French toast. I would kill French toast. I would probably fuck pancakes and marry uh, waffles. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? can be anything. Josh Harbinger. I interviewed with him like 20 years ago. He probably doesn't remember. Maybe this will jog his memory because he'll get tagged in this when it comes out. So, Question that I would ask them. God, let me think. Let's see. Rice or pasta? Uh, this question comes from one of our listeners. What kind of market research did you do before opening Sueno? In terms of like the Dayton market? I didn't really do any because we're so different from everybody else. So going to eat at different places wasn't going to affect what we did as a, as, a, as a kitchen or a company or a traditional Mexican restaurant. I think La Mixteca up the street 
is kind of like a Mexican restaurant that people really enjoy, but it's kind of that Mexican restaurant we talked about in the beginning. No one else is really doing what we're doing. You know, we have our own masa program, you know, we're making our own tortillas. We're bringing in different cuts of meat and doing all kinds of different things that people aren't, aren't doing here in terms of like the Mexican kitchen. So didn't really have to do too much. Last set of questions here. We ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast. So it's a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far when you look back at it? Uh, the chef named Francis Gonzalez. He, I worked for him out of culinary school. In terms of food, he didn't have any influence, but he taught me how to run a kitchen and how to do it with systems. And without him, I wouldn't have progressed enough to be able to open something like Surly as successful as we did. What's the one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? A good Sharpie. What's one thing in the restaurant you would not fix yourself? Anything electrical. Restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't your own? So scenario I usually give, a person gets stuck at the airport overnight. They reach out to you. Hey, you know, stuck here. Where should we go eat? You guys are closed. For Dayton, I would say, um, you know, if you're stuck during the day, for Dayton, I would say Grist. And if you're stuck here at night, Jollity. And then in Minneapolis, oh man, that's a tough one. I would say Quang's in Minneapolis. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, place you want to eat that you haven't been to, place you want to travel to that you haven't been to. Um, I'd love to travel to Peru, but I'd really love to eat at Pujol in Mexico City. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? I don't have one. I mean, I can't even think of it. There's got to be something, but... Examples we've had before, you know, Ansel system going off, grease, fire, stuff like that. But we've also had, you know, people getting cut with a knife or stabbed with a knife. SWAT team coming through the restaurant due to an off-duty police officer with a, with a gun. So we've had some, some crazy ones. So anything fall kind of anywhere in that range that you can think of? I don't have anything crazy that I can think of, but our Ansel system went off at, at Sueno like the night before we were going to open. I'm glad it happened that day because we would have been fucked if it happened during our first opening. And it sucked because, you know, we've got our eight foot hearth and it's got all this ash you have to clean up that's now soaking wet. That sucked. When the Ansel system goes off, the fire department has to come back out, like reset everything, right? And then does it have to be like reloaded with fire repellent? And that's like a day usually. I mean, it's, yeah, it's quick. It's not, they can do it that day. Food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything like uh, fast food or, you know, you're going through the aisles of a grocery store, you know, like this thing's down there and you kind of try to avoid it because you can't resist? Yeah, I have a major sweet tooth, like bad. And I'm trying to curb how much sugar I eat. So like cookies are fucking, a good cookie is really tough or donuts are really tough for me to like avoid drinking wise. I don't really drink that much, so don't have one. What's your go-to cookie? I don't have one. It doesn't matter. That's the problem. It's like... Like peanut butter, Oreos, like what? No, I, I usually try to get something homemade. Like, so if I see, like, you know, if I go to like the Dorothy Lane market, you know, they've got like these, you know, homemade monster chocolate chocolate cookies. And it's just like, it's only six, but you, can, you can't ration it. You just sit and eat the whole fucking thing. Favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked, created, uh, kind of looking back on your career, you can kind of point to this moment as like the aha moment where you knew you could do this professionally. I don't have that. I, I never like made a dish and was like, oh, fuck, yeah, I can do this. I think it's just the progression of like where I started to the progression of where I am now is staggering. I've, like dishes I did when I was in my 20s, like looking back and seeing photos, I'm just like, holy shit, that is awful. How did I put that on a plate? Versus like now, 
actually, I'm in the next article of art culinary. And it's like, that's like, for me, one of the pinnacles of like food photography, whatnot. So like looking back 20 years ago, looking at a dish being like, Jesus Christ, like who's going to eat this versus like art culinary calling me saying, Hey, we want to feature your food in our magazine. The progression of that is like, for me, like I'm there. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were, is there an episode moment scene that stands out? If you weren't, was there another person, an Emerald, a Guy Fieri, somebody who's on kind of TV culinary influencer that you always kind of gravitated towards throughout your career? I am an Anthony Bourdain fan, more his, his reading and rhetoric. I don't have a favorite. I, I remember he came to the CIA and it was him and Heston Blumenthal. They did a speech together. And I just remember him saying the words habitual masturbator. <laughs> just like that always stuck with me. I, you know, that was like 20, 25 years ago. And it's like, who admits to being that in a group of like 400 students? So I was like, you, you got some balls. But yeah, I've never had somebody that I really gravitate toward. There's now as a, as a older chef, I do look at some, there are people that I do kind of see and like, I always check to see what they're doing, you know, like, oh, what's, what's he up to or what's she up to this time? Like, let's see what their food looks like. You know, now I have more people that via Instagram, it's easier. So uh, for me, Nunez, for instance, in, uh, in Austin, Texas, you know, him and I have had a lot of conversations about things and he, he was a big help in helping me get the MASA program dialed in here at Sueño. You know, Claudette uh, Wilkinson out in San Diego is someone else I kind of like, you know, follow, see what she's up to. You know, we chat every once in a while. There's a bunch of like Mexican chefs that I'm that I'm always looking to see what they're doing because I want to see where they're taking their food or or whatnot. So yeah, I don't I don't have as a younger chef I didn't have any, but now I do. I check around. You know, Instagram allows you to do that. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything. Yeah, the the best place is Instagram. Jorge Guzman one is my personal, and then obviously you know Sueño DYT, Petit Leon MPLS. You know, website for Petit. Uh, website for Sueño. Uh, you know, we're kind of everywhere. And then Sueño is open Tuesday through Saturday? Tuesday through Saturday. You know, we're working on getting one more day under our belts. And Petite is Monday through Saturday. I appreciate you coming on. Sueño's, you know, we had an awesome experience there. It's only an hour from Columbus. I think it's maybe a little less from Cincinnati. So, like, you can drive, eat, have a great time, drive back. You know, haven't made it up to Minneapolis yet, but it is on the list. It's just, uh, it gets pretty cold up there. So it's not exactly somewhere I'm going to go for the winter, but uh, we'll definitely get up there. There's some amazing restaurants up there. Definitely want to check out and, and your stuff too. But we had an amazing time at Sueño. I can't say enough about it. Just the whole atmosphere, the food. It's an awesome time and can't recommend it enough for people that are looking for just another restaurant to try something new, you know, outside their city and take a little bit of a road trip. And it's definitely worth the drive for sure. Definitely a beautiful space. Kind of a funny story on that. Two of the owners, David and Ginger, have design backgrounds, but they they don't they didn't go to school for it or anything like that. But they're just really good at it, and they ended up winning, I think, the biggest architectural award in Dayton for their design and uh, of Sueño, beating out like architectural firms and things like that. And I, I thought that was really cool because when you do walk into Sueño, it's it's definitely a beautiful space. Hopefully we'll see you soon, either at Sueño or up in Minneapolis. Anytime you want to come on, talk food, we're happy to have you back on. You got a new menu to plug or whatever, new project. Stay in touch. We'll see you soon. Keep doing what you're doing. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. A big thanks again to Chef Jorge Guzman for 
being more generous with his time, fit me into his schedule when he was coming into Dayton to spend the weekend at Sueno there. Really appreciate it. It was awesome to finally get him on the podcast. Like I said, the food out at Sueno was amazing. The restaurant design is awesome. I mean, like he said, they won some awards just for the design alone. The food's phenomenal. The drinks are phenomenal too as well. You know, I can't recommend it enough if you're looking for a little bit of an upscale Mexican food. But I mean, like I said, they do other things. They had ribs on the menu and stuff like that too recently. So it's not just strictly like Mexican only food you can buy. But that's definitely the theme. And, and I mean, the mole, you know, the tortillas, like that's all just, it's just phenomenal food. Selfishly, I wish it was here in Columbus. Uh, so it was a little bit easier to get to, but Dayton's only an hour drive. So it's not bad. And Dayton's got a couple other cool restaurants out there too, as well, that are worth checking out. So hopefully Dayton gets more and more kind of chefs and stuff to kind of come to the area since, you know, I, I would imagine real estate's a little bit cheaper in Dayton than it is in Columbus or Cleveland or Cincinnati or Indianapolis, which are kind of the surrounding cities. So I got to imagine that that might be a spot that people hopefully uh, begin to start to expand or look into down the road as we kind of talked about towards the end there. But again, follow him on Instagram at Jorge Guzman one, also at Sueño DYT. His other two restaurants at Petit Leon MPLS and at Pollo Pollo MPLS. Follow those both on Instagram too as well. Check out our Instagram at SpoonMob. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. We do have the podcast up on YouTube. Uh, they do premiere the same day as they release on all the podcast apps. So you can watch it through YouTube. It's pretty much a still image and, and the audio in the background. So if YouTube's your preferred player, it is on there for you. Also make sure to give us a subscribe and follow on you know Apple, Spotify, Amazon, somewhere over there too as well, just because that helps us out with kind of the data numbers and stuff like that. YouTube, uh, you know, whatever the subscriber count gets to is whatever it gets to, but it's never probably going to be big enough on YouTube for uh, us to do too much with it, at least uh, not anytime soon, maybe years down the road. So make sure to follow us or subscribe on a podcast platform. If you could do us that favor and whenever you hit up one of the restaurants that we've had on the podcast featured, one of the chefs, you know, make sure to tell your hostess server, hey, you know, we heard about this place on on this podcast called Spoon Mob and we're super excited to try it out. That'll help us, you know, hopefully book uh, additional guests in the future and, and kind of help build those network connections too as well. Every little bit helps and counts. So again, we appreciate everybody listening and helping spread the word, continue to do so. That's the biggest way that we keep growing. So, you know, we appreciate all you guys. Been having a blast so far. More great guests to come. We'll talk to you guys next week.